if you can open your Bibles to Genesis 16, 7 through 16. Um, in your pew Bibles, it is page 10. All right, Genesis 16, 7 through 16. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have been seen, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is behind Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 68, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Good morning, church. So I went to seminary at Bethlehem College and Seminary here in the Twin Cities. And it was an amazing place. I had a lot of godly professors, a lot of godly classmates, and I grew a lot there. It was also the most challenging and rigorous thing I've ever been a part of. The workload was immense. Uh, the writing and thinking was difficult. And so even though I was tested in that way, I was tested in an even deeper way. There's something really strange about seminary. Well, you guys all know this because all of you have gone to school. But you're assessed based off of how much you can remember, how well you can articulate it, how well you can discuss it in a classroom with other people who have a strong desire to, to go in the same directions and know and learn the same things that you learn and know. How long do you think it took me before I was comparing myself to my classmates? Probably on day one. And, right, and, I, and I noticed something that as soon as I started comparing myself with my classmates and competing with my classmates, my success became my first priority. Loving them became my second priority. So the desire to compete and succeed above others actually inhibits and prevents you from loving them well. And what, I, what I'm describing right now are the destructive seeds of jealousy and envy that can seek, seep into any community and tear it apart. Now I'm a pastor, and I'm on a team with four of the other most gifted, godly guys I know, and we're all serving Jesus, and we're all going in the same direction, we're all pastors, and I can still struggle with the same thing. And so if I'm struggling with this, right, 
and, and I'm just an ordinary person, wouldn't it be safe to assume that we're all struggling with that? And so the question I want us to ask this morning is how can we fight against the destructive seeds of envy and jealousy that can tear a community apart? How can we put that to death in our own hearts so that it doesn't put us to death when it becomes full-growing? We're going to see and learn that lesson this morning from our story, from the book of Genesis. Now, if you remember from last week, if you weren't here from last week, there was a family that was torn apart from envy and from sin. So, Abram Abram and Sarai are on this journey. God has chosen them to be the parents of a new kingdom that he's creating through which he's going to rescue all of the nations of the world that have fallen. Their lives and his work comes down to whether or not they can have a child or not. For that kingdom to come into place, for his promises to be fulfilled, they have to have a child. And lo and behold, that's the one thing they can't have. They wait for years for God to fulfill that promise. And he waits. And they decide they just can't take it anymore. They're going to take matters into their own hands. And Sarai ends up giving one of her main servants to Abram as a second wife. And he impregnates her as supposedly their way of fulfilling God's promise and bringing an offspring into the world. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Alright, so it doesn't work out very well because Hagar, uh, Abram's second wife, she uh, starts to compete with Sarai. She thinks, well... I'm the pregnant one, and so I'm superior to you now. And she actually looks at her contemptuously. And how do you think Sarai responds to that? Well, she starts to treat her harshly, abusively, so much so that Hagar actually runs away and flees out into the wilderness where she could die. Abram, what does he do? He sits passively back and just lets it happen. He's like Adam in the garden again, just letting chaos and sin come in and rule and destroy his household. So that's where we pick up in the ruins of last week's message. After sin has ruled and taken control of this household, Hagar's fleeing away into the wilderness. Uh, It's not very likely she's going to survive out there, especially while she's pregnant. And this is where the story picks up. So let's take a look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So the way to Shur is where Hagar is. And that's actually a road that leads from Canaan back to Egypt. She's an Egyptian maidservant. That's where she's from. After things go horribly in Abram's household, she decides to throw in the towel with following the God of Abram and Sarai because they were so horrible to her. She decides to go back to her old life. And she's on the way home, on the way down to Egypt. If you notice the two settings in view in this verse, they're telling us something. The household of Abraham represents the place of life. So she was in the place of life where God's name and God's presence was. Now she's ventured out into the wilderness and she's on the path to death. Probably physically, certainly spiritually. She's running away not only from Abram and his household, but from the God of the world who is the God of Abram and the God of Sarai. Now what's insane about this story is that in the household of Abram, the one place in the world where she should not have been sinned against because they're the representatives of God, that's where the worst sin happened to her. 
like, this should be mind-boggling to us. The one place in the world among God's people where she should not have been sinned against is the place where she was sinned against the worst of all. And so she runs away. The household of Abraham was also the place of her sin, her worst sin, because that's where she starts to compete with Sarai and look down on her contemptuously. So this is like the no good, very bad worst day of everyone's lives where horrible sin is committed against Hagar and Hagar responds in kind and Sarai responds in kind. When's it going to stop? Well, I guess when she's dead out in the desert, right? So everything's just spiraling downwards. So this brings us insight for our lives this morning. Are we sinners or the victims of sin? Are we sinners or the victims of sin? Yes. Yes. In our brokenness and pain, rarely are any one of us just guilty or just innocent. It's a complicated mess of sinning against others and other people sinning against us. And if we don't have that paradigm in the world, we'll oftentimes place the blame solely on another person or solely on ourselves, and we'll be just so focused on that, we won't be focusing on asking God for help. Rather, it's better to admit that everyone's broken, everyone's flawed, and everyone needs the Lord, regardless of who's the aggressor, who's the victim. Somewhere along the way, all of us need to turn to God for help and deliverance, and no one is without that need. Now, this is going to connect with some of us because I know some of your stories. And some of you come and have a past where God's people have sinned against you and hurt you deeply. Some people are here this morning, I've never met you, and maybe you've come from a past where in a church or another place, God's people have sinned against you or hurt you horribly. And I want to say to you this morning, if that's happened to you, I'm sorry. That's the place where least of all in all the world that should have ever happened. And I don't have any quick fixes or quick solutions for you. All we have this morning is a story that shows us what God is really like and who he really is and how he pursues even the most afflicted people, even people who have been afflicted by God's people, the very people who should have never hurt them in the first place. And we see that already in the very first verse. It says, The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. Question for you, who, who went out looking for Hagar? in the story when she was driven away. Who went out and said, hey, maybe we should check on Hagar to make sure she's okay after she got beat up and ran away into the wilderness? God did. Yeah, no one else did, just God. God's the one who sends an angel from another world to seek and pursue her with a message from another world. And in the process of her interaction in this conversation with an angel, her heart and her life are going to completely change and transform and things are never going to be the same for her ever again. So God doesn't erase our pain. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. But he comes and finds us at our lowest point and he changes us and makes us never the same again. And that's what's going to happen to Hagar here. So let's see what this angel says to her. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. So this angel shows up and he asks Hagar a question. Now he's not ignorant. He doesn't like not know where Hagar came from or where she's going. He does know. 
He's asking her a question in order to draw out her heart. Because this question, where you come from and where are you going, would draw out from her both the sin that she committed and the sin that was committed against her. This is God's way of patiently pursuing someone. If you remember earlier in Genesis, when Adam sinned, God went after him and said, Adam, where are you? And now in this situation, Hagar, when she's fleeing from the household of Abram, when she's fleeing from the place where God's presence is, God sends an angel in pursuit of her and asks her a question. Questions represent God's patient pursuit of sinners. So we have a God who doesn't come and slap us or beat us up or destroy us when we sin. We have a God who patiently pursues us. And this is how God patiently pursues Hagar with a question. And uh, as Christians, we're supposed to patiently pursue sinners. So if you want to wonder how that starts, start by asking a loving and gentle question to someone and try to draw out their heart because that's how our God does it with us. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? So she says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So all the people who have been asked a question in the Bible by God, you got Adam and then you have Cain and now you have Sarai. No one's been honest yet until we get to Hagar. Hagar is the first one who's honest and says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now in her answer, she reveals something important. What does she call Sarai? Her mistress. And how does the angel address Hagar? He calls her servant of Sarai. He's pointing out something. That Sarai was Hagar's legitimate authority in this time. Abram and Sarai are something like a king and a queen that God's using to bring forth a new nation. And Hagar was bound, bound to them as, in, in a certain way as servants are bound to royalty. And so her flight from his household was not only her attempt to get away from his treatment, it was also rebellion. It was also a rebellious act of her fleeing from an authority that she was bound to submit to. And of course we say, well that's not right, that's not fair, and I think that's the point. Everyone is sinning against everyone. No one's doing the right thing, and it's messed up and confusing, and it's difficult to ascertain what should happen, but nevertheless the angel is very clear, and Sarah admits it, and Hagar admits it herself, that she is fleeing from her legitimate authority. And then in verse 9, the angel's going to say something that I think I would struggle with a ton if I was Hagar. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to your mistress and submit to her. What, you mean the person who is mistreating me? The person who I have a beef with? The person who I'm struggling with? Yes, yes, that person. What we need to do right now is see how this fits into the broader story that we've been walking in so far to see what it is that this angel's asking her to do. Right? So, if you remember, she's on the road to Egypt from Canaan. And what we've seen in the story so far is that Egypt... She's on the road from Canaan to Egypt. Egypt represents people's desires to do things in their own way, in their own timing, apart from God, and to have control. So essentially what Hagar said is, I'm being so mistreated that I'm out of here. I'm going to take control of my situation. I'm not going to let these people mistreat me. I'm not going to let these people harm me. I don't care if it costs me the presence of God, even though it's with the household of Abram. I'm out of here. I'm taking control. This is what Abram did when he fled to Egypt earlier. This is what Hagar is doing right now. 
And the angel is saying, hey God, I want you to submit and surrender and return to the household where you were mistreated. Yes, it will be a challenge. Yes, it will be hard. But I'm there. I'm there. If you turn around and you go back, I am there and you will gain me. So what this word is really referring to and alluding to, the word return, is the idea of repentance. Right? When we read the New Testament, we hear the idea of repentance. And one way I've heard repentance defined is literally you're walking one way, right? Away from God, away from His will, away from His commands, and you turn around and start walking the other way, towards God, doing His command, doing His will. Hagar is being asked to walk the road of repentance. And usually with us, it's like a direction of our heart or a direction of our behavior with her. She would literally have to turn around and walk the other way on the road. That's what repentance would look like for her. Going back towards the God of Abraham, towards the God of creation, even though there's mistreatment, even though there's difficulty, even though there's sin that she's facing. And what this illustrates for us is that repenting is never easy. Repenting is always hard. Repenting always costs something. At the very least, it costs us control. She must end her rebellious journey towards Egypt and return to Canaan. In Egypt, it seems like at least you have control. You are in charge, but you lose God's presence. In Canaan, you give up control, but you get God. God is inviting Hagar to make the biggest surrender of her life. He's calling her to put herself again under the authority of someone who has mistreated her and with whom she's at odds. Since he has a purpose for her in Canaan and plans to care for her there. When, the, when God through the angel is asking her to submit and return to her mistress, he's not ultimately asking her to submit to Sarai. He's ultimately asking her to submit to him. And that's really the offer that he's making to us this morning. I'm asking you to totally surrender to me every area of your life, where you don't understand it, where it doesn't make sense, and to go on a journey towards me, even though it could cost you anything, and do whatever it is I want you to do. Are you willing to make that journey? Are you willing to give up control? Are you willing to go on a journey towards Canaan and worship and obey the God of creation? We repent when we decide that knowing God is better than controlling our lives. His words, rather than our own judgment, become our lifeline, and we do everything we can to get closer to Him. What's one area in your life this morning that you are seizing and grasping for control that God wants you to let go of and repent and trust Him instead? God's shown up to Hagar. He's shown up with authority. He's asked her to surrender and do the most difficult thing of her life. He's asked her to repent. And now he's going to do something really amazing. He's going to start to make her promises. So when God asks us to repent, he doesn't just say, do the right thing because I told you to. No, he's going to make her promises that are going to make her want to obey him. That's how he works with us. He asks us questions, and he makes us promises, and he gently leads our heart towards repentance. He comes to us with all authority and all gentleness, and he leads us away from ourselves and our sin and towards him. He doesn't have to be like that. He doesn't have to be patient. He doesn't have to be kind. But he is because it's who he is. 
and he makes us promises that lead us back away from our sin and towards himself, and that's exactly how he's going to treat Hagar. So that's where we arrive now in verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Sounds a little strange to us, doesn't it? That that's the thing the angel says right now at this moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Well, the angel's communicating that the same blessing that I put on Abram, that I'm going to turn him into a nation with all sorts of children, that's the same blessing that I'm going to put on you, Hagar. My blessing is not limited. My blessing is not exclusive. My blessing reaches all my people who surrender and trust me. I'm asking you for total surrender, but I'm going to give you more than you ever imagined or dreamed. That's the offer God makes to all of us this morning. I'm asking you for total surrender, but in my timing, in my way, perhaps in this life, definitely in the next life, I'm going to give you more than ever you asked or imagined for or dreamed. See, Hagar probably has a low view of herself. She's an Egyptian immigrant in a strange land who's neglected, abused, and forgotten. And God says, I have a huge plan for you. I'm going to make you a mother of a nation. I'm going to make you a mother of a multitude. If you turn and repent and you return to this household, you have a future ahead of you. Right? She probably thought if she went back, there's no future for her. And that's often how we feel, right? If we give up control, if we give up this sin, there's no future for us. But God's saying to her, I have a future for you better than you could ever imagine. You will be the mother of a nation and the mother of the multitude. You will not be a forgotten immigrant. I will bless you more than you can imagine. That's what, that, that's what this statement means. So I want you to surrender. I want you to come. And then I'm going to give you more than you could ever imagine receiving Hagar. You're going to be greater in my kingdom than you ever thought you could be. And I really believe that there are people here this morning, myself included, who struggle to find, to think that God thinks of you and has a significant plan for your life, and he does. Like, he loves to take insignificant people and raise them up and bless the nations through them. And so he takes this person who was so down on her luck, so forgotten, so abused, and he tells her that I'm going to make you into a multitude. And then he keeps speaking to her. Right? In verse 11, the angel speaks to her again. He doesn't stop. I love this. He just keeps going. He keeps, he keeps heaping blessing on this woman. He says in verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord's called her to crazy obedience. And he's set ahead of her an amazing future and hope. Perhaps she's struggling to believe it. Like, it seems so distant. It seems so far. It seems so strange. Perhaps she's struggling to believe that God could actually follow through. But now the angel reminds her, Hagar, you're already pregnant. The first down payment of this promise is already in your womb. It's it's on its way. It's coming. You have a son. And I think this shows us that oftentimes God doesn't give us everything we could ever want, but he gives us what we need to obey today. He doesn't always give us what we need to obey tomorrow. He gives us what we need to obey today. And then when we arrive at tomorrow, he gives us what we need to obey tomorrow. And so Hagar doesn't have much at this point, 
She basically only has promises, but then in the midst of that, God gives her a son. He reminds her that there's a son in your womb. His name is Ishmael, which means God hears. So every time she says his name Ishmael, in her language, she would understand that this son is a reminder to her of what happened in the wilderness, that out there when everyone forgot you, God didn't, he listened to you, and he came to you. Right? You should call his name Ishmael, you should call his name God listens, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so in our world, we tend to pay attention to significant people, and insignificant people fall through the cracks. That doesn't happen in God's world. He pays attention to all, especially the lowly and the afflicted, and he listened to her and finds her and blesses her and cares for her and gives her everything she needs to turn around and walk the road to repentance. When God commands you to do something, he gives you what you need to do it. There's two different ways of living. There's I'm going to try to accumulate as much wealth, success, and power for myself so that I don't need God. Or I'm going to, all I need is God and I trust he's going to need, give me everything I need to obey him today. And that is what he does with Hagar at this moment. And then verse 12. Talking about Ishmael. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. In his hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Does anyone want your kid to be a wild donkey of a man? Right, so this, this is where the blessing gets a little mixed. This is, this is not a good thing. So God promises unbelievable things to Hagar, and then he promises difficult things to Hagar. And that's often how it works in this life. It's never all easy or all hard. It's a mixture of both. And God gives us what we need to turn us into the people he wants to make us into. So Hagar's son Ishmael is going to struggle and he's going to have hostility and violence against other people. He's going to be a person who's in relational conflict, tension, and war with other people. Even his kinsmen, which is probably a reference to the Israelites. So the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of Ishmael are going to have conflict in the future. And I think one thing this would do was that it would inform Hagar that her line is not the line of promise. Sarah's line will be the line of promise through whom God will rescue the nations, including the nation of Ishmael. And so even though I'm going to bless you out of your mind, even though I'm going to do more for you, Hagar, than you could ever imagine, yet I'm going to continue to fulfill my promises through Sarai and not through you. And so this promise not only is something that's so good for her, but it's also a test. It's a test of her heart. How is she going to respond to this mixed blessing, right? Because on one hand, she could say, forget it. I, I went through that horrible situation. I'm the one who's pregnant before Sarai. I should have the offspring of promise. Or will she say, God, you know what's best? You're wiser than I am. You're doing more good to me than I deserve. And I trust you. So she's being tested in this mixed blessing. And now let's see how she responds, because I love how she responds. This is how I want to respond. This is how I want our whole church to respond to the mixed blessings of this life that we all enjoy. This is like one of the awesomest responses in scripture that just, I want to live up to this. I want us to live up to this response. Let's take a look and see how Hagar answers God and answers the angel. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, 
I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. Hagar is the first person in the Bible to name God. She was the first person in the Bible to give God a name. Adam doesn't do it. Noah doesn't do it. Not even Abram does it. But at this moment, this woman has so encountered God, so been cared for by him, that she feels compelled to give him a name. And she calls him a God of seeing. Right, this is pointing to something that all of us need to become intimately and deeply aware of about our God. A God of seeing is pointing to the fact that he not only meets our needs, but he knows our needs. He intimately knows our needs. I'm looking at about 70 or 80 people right now. And every one of us has thousands of needs. Thousands of needs. And they're all different from one another. And I don't know what they are, and I couldn't care for them all. And yet there's a God who his reputation is he not only can care for your needs, but he knows them all. Every last one of them. The way your body doesn't work right, the way your mind doesn't work right, the way your relationships are broken, the way your job is hard, the way your childhood scarred you. Like he knows it all right now. And the things that he's giving you are meeting your needs in the best way possible. Like, if we knew everything God knew, then we would totally approve of the way he took care of our lives. But it's because we don't know everything he knows that we struggle with it. You see what I'm saying? Like, if we acknowledge that God knows more than us, that's a confession that he's going to do things better than we know how to do them with us. And so, and so when things happen that we don't want to, when the blessing is more mixed than we want it to be, we're invited to join Hagar and say, you're a God of seeing and you know more than I do, you know better than I do, and I'm just going to trust and worship you as, and I'm going to watch you take care of me better than I could ever take care of myself. Repentance is a surrender. It's a surrender. And if you're going to surrender to someone, they better darn well know how to take care of you better than you do. Because if they're worse at taking care of you than you are, then you're in trouble, right? And then you might as well just seize control and do your best job. And, and it will not turn out well, but you'll do your best. <laughs> but if there's someone who really sees and really knows and really cares more than you or I could ever know, then, then he's worth surrendering to, isn't he? <laughs> And everything in this text is just thundering this message. Everyone and everything gets a new name, right? Ishmael gets a name that means God hears. God gets a name that means God sees. And this well gets a crazy name that I'm not even going to pronounce again. I'm just going to translate it. It's called the well of the one who sees me. So the well, the baby, and God all get new names to remind Hagar and remind us today that there's a God who knows our needs better than we know them and has a plan to take care of them better than we could ever come up with. That's the kind of God that we see in this text. 
We see God provide through his words in this story, right? The angel speaks to her three times, which shows that one of her most fundamental needs was not for her circumstances to change, but her perspective to change from her perspective to God's perspective. She needs to see things through heaven's eyes. Because our limited perspectives miss what God sees, miss what God's doing, miss the ultimate end to which God's bringing all things. You can say this morning, man, if only I had words from God, if only I could know what he was up to, if only I could hear from him about how he cares for me and about how he's going to do good to me even when I don't understand it. If only I had that like Hagar. And you do. Like, you have probably ten of them on your bookshelf and one in in front of you right now this morning. And what a call to us, church, that if we're going to trust God like Hagar did, we've got to be with God every day. And just a call and a summons and reminder to us that our value of be with the Father changes our hearts. And if we're going to be the kind of people who truly trust God to provide in any way and every way, that we've got to spend time with Him every morning. So just please, if, if you've fallen off that bandwagon, I invite you back on to spending time with God. And if that's a challenge, if that's difficult, if it seems too difficult to change, to, to change right now, just reach out to someone and ask them if they'll do it with you. Right? There's a whole community here, and we're here to help one another. So please reach out to someone and say, hey, can we read the Bible and pray together? Because I just don't have enough energy to do it on my own right now. Now this story, like every story, points to the ultimate provision that God makes. When Jesus, the Son of God, dies for our sins on the cross... That is the ultimate provision in the history of the world. God looked down and he saw our sin. He saw our deepest need. He heard our cries for help. And he responded by sending himself in his son. He sent Jesus to provide for our needs. If you have any question about if God is committed to caring for your needs, look no further than Jesus hanging on a cross. How, How could someone demonstrate more commitment than that? He goes to the ultimate extent to care for our needs so that every other lesser need we have, we can turn to him and trust him. God, I know if you cared for that, if you sent your son and went that far to care for me, I know you're going to care for me today. And so as we're reading this story, what it's doing is it's preparing the way, it's preparing our hearts to worship and praise God for sending Jesus the ultimate provision who can care for anyone's need anywhere, anytime. It's so crazy is that there's one solution to 10 million needs. 10 billion needs. There's nothing else like him in the whole world. Like, like usually, like, the solution's going to look a little different for all of your needs in your life. Like, you need a little bit of that and a little bit of that, and someone else needs this. But when it comes to Jesus, he's the one solution that meets every need for every person in all of time. And that's why, as I'm preaching right now, there's more Christians in the world than ever before, more cultures than ever before, and people show up. People show up in cultures who've never heard the name of Jesus and they tell them about the gospel and people are like, this is the one we've been waiting for. Right? So you're worshiping a God who meets global needs of every kind of person and that happens all through Jesus. So I think we see Hagar change here. Right? We see Hagar completely transformed through this encounter with God because she goes from venturing one way to venturing another way. She turns around mid-journey. And if you look at the end of this passage, the location and setting totally changes. She's back in the household of Abram. 
Let's take a look at verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we see Hagar back in Abram's household. She's been changed. And we see Abram change. He's no longer allowing her to be mistreated and abused. At least he doesn't say so. At least he doesn't describe it as that way. Instead of being passive and hanging back, he's taking a step forward and being the father that he was supposed to be. It's a messed up situation. There's two different children from two different mothers. Their sin has a consequence. And yet Abram's called to take care of Ishmael, just like he will be called to take care of Isaac. And we see him step forward and do that. So Hagar's not the only one who's changed. Abram's the one who's changed as well. And for the first time in the story, we see a story where Abram's not the hero. God uses Hagar as the hero to come and bring peace to his household in this time of trouble, which is a picture that shows us that God can use anyone and everyone who will submit to being used by him and trust him. Now, church, some good news I have for us this morning is that God wants to use each one of us in the exact same way as Hagar to bring peace to this community, to this household. Much conflict can come from jealousy and envy. Who hangs out with whom? Who's dating whom? Who's better than me at this or that? Right? We'd like to think that that's all behind us when we're kids, and then it goes away when we grow up. And yet, uh, the competitive, envious heart that Sarai and Hagar head towards one another it just doesn't go away oftentimes until we reach glory. And so the option is we either secretly let it rule us or we go to war against it. And like God said earlier in the Bible, sin is like a crouching animal and you must rule over it. The envious heart has a small view of God. Right? When your heart is envious, you have a small view of God. You think that Life is a zero-sum game. There's not enough of God to provide for both of us. And so I have to compete with this person to get more popularity, to get more recognition, to get more uh, accepted than they are so that I can get what I need. Right? When you compete with someone else, you reveal that you have a small view of God, that he's not able to take care of both you and them. The lesson that Hagar learned in the wilderness that we all need to learn this morning is that God is more abundantly able to provide for everyone than we could ever imagine. He's able to take care of the other person and he's able to take care of you so you don't have to want what they want. And at the end of the day, at the bottom of it all, what we want most as Christians is him. And there's more than enough of him to go around. And so if we align our hearts and seek after what's truly valuable and truly desirable, we can really let go of our envy and our jealousy and put it to death and be free of it. I I really think the world's corrupted by envious and jealous relationships that turn friendships cold, that keep people distant, and our community could be a different kind of place where those kinds of things don't separate us, but we become a family that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God that draws the world in. Because our sin isn't killing us, we're killing it. So Hagar has, learns a lesson about God in the wilderness that she applies to the household of Abram. And I think that's a lesson our Lord wants to teach us this morning. He's more abundant than you ever thought. He's going to do more good to you than you ever dreamed. And so you can let go of whatever it is that you're discontent with.
and be content with the person God made you and use everything that he's giving you just to love other people like crazy. You can go on the journey Abram went on to bless the whole world, to bless the nations, and we can do that together because of the gospel. You can be freed from your old self. I can be freed from my old self to become a completely new person like Hagar in God's kingdom. And that's what I want for every one of us. That's what I want for this church. And praise God, I think he's done a lot of work, hasn't he? So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this amazing story of this amazing forgotten Egyptian immigrant who you did glorious things through. You taught her glorious things. You showed her glorious things. You rescued her for glorious purposes. And I ask that you would open our eyes to see that that's exactly what you're doing for each one of us this morning who are repenting and trusting you. And I ask this morning that anyone who hasn't yet come to you or known you would see and hear in this story that you're a God who's so abundant and so large that you're worthy to be sought. You're worthy to be accepted. And let them come to you, God. And now let us worship you. The right response to being provided for by God is to worship you, God. And I ask that our hearts to be sold out in praise for you. The rest of this gathering, the rest of this day, and then the rest of our lives. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen.